0: Welcome to the Civil Squared podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr.
1: Jennifer K. Thompson. Hi there, and thanks for joining us today. I am looking forward to sharing this conversation that I recently had with Bob Feldman. Bob is the vice chair of ICF Next, which is a global marketing and communications agency. And in his capacity in that job, Bob has advised clients like Netflix, Disney, DuPont, Toyota, Wells Fargo, the list goes on and on, and there are a lot of names you would recognize. Uh, Prior to his role at ICF Next, Bob was the first head of corporate communications and corporate marketing at DreamWorks Animation SKG. And before that, he was the president and chief executive of WPP's GCI Group. So just listening to his experience, I think you can imagine that probably there's a lot of interesting conversations to have with Bob. And that's one reason, of course, that I was excited to talk to him. But we were talking to him in his role as the founder of the Dialogue Project. And this is a research effort, and you're going to hear more about it in our conversation But the goal is to explore what role business can play in improving civil discourse and reducing polarization. So it fits right in with uh, our efforts at Civil Squared. This project was supported by Google, Chevron, Bristol-Myers Squibb, HP Southwest, among a number of others, and also had academic support from the University of Southern California. Now, we know about the project because we were lucky enough to have some of our previous work featured in one of the case studies in the project. But you're going to hear more about the project, why Bob thinks that business has an important role to play in improving civil discourse, how we went about this, and what he learned from it. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. I want to talk about I want to talk about the dialogue project obviously because that's that's why we're here but I think given the timing today is November 10th 2020 I want to actually start by pointing out that you had a piece in the Harvard Business Review back in October uh, and the title was Don't Let Election Passions Royal Your Workplace. And in that piece, you outlined two possible outcomes post election. One would be that the elections decided um, definitively on election day, and that the losing candidate would concede before everyone went back to work on Wednesday. That didn't happen. Uh, the other was, and, and I'm going to quote you here, the vote count drags on for days or weeks or one or both sides allege wrongdoing by the other, and the issue lands in the courts or even in the US House of Representatives. So first, nice work on that prediction. I think that was good. <laughs> it seems Thank like we, we are we are there. Um, but I, I want to come back to that a little bit later because I think what's most important about that is you have a very strong opinion, and your work on the Dialogue Project, I think, has probably led you to conclude that given where we are, uh, and in, the, in a couple of weeks when we release this podcast, we're likely to be somewhere in a similar position, probably. Given where we are, business has a role to play in. Kind of evening things out, making things less contentious, um, and I wanna I wanna talk about that in the specifics of post election. But before we do that, let's let's get to the dialogue project and its genesis. I know it was something that you announced uh, the study and the research back in two thousand nineteen, late two thousand nineteen. But I also know that something like that takes all kinds of time and thought prior to that. So what led you to wanting to launch? The dialogue project and and put your time and resources into it
0: well interestingly i was uh invited to give a speech at the annual conference of the page society the page society is the industry association for senior corporate communications executives and agency ceos i received an award so i needed to give a speech and i had to think about well, what am i going to talk about And I thought nobody really needed to hear me pontificate about the state of the communications business, per se. So I was trying to think of what might be more interesting. And it led me to think about the issues of polarization and discourse, Uh, one, because it's so pronounced in this country, frankly, around the world. And two, at its core, it's a communications issue. So the idea of addressing a group of senior communications professionals about this issue seemed uh, potentially uh, quite relevant. In the course of writing the speech, though, I came to the obvious conclusion that talk is cheap. uh, And just giving a speech alone may not really be all that substantive. So literally, in the course of writing the speech, thought you know, what we should really do is use this as kind of a kickoff or a platform to do a bit of a deep dive and do some research into this issue and really to explore the question of what is the role of business when it comes to helping to reduce polarization and improve civil discourse in our society. It's that simple. What's the role of business on that? And the idea was to, A, understand it, and B, to the extent possible, shed a light on those businesses and organizations that were doing really great work that ultimately could help educate and inspire other businesses and business leaders to do something. That really was the purpose of the whole program, to educate and to shed a light, and then to educate and inspire other business leaders to look at all that and say, you know what, maybe we should be doing more. Yeah. And so you're right, I mean, it it took some time. So we announced this in September of 2019, really kind of pulled it together in the fourth quarter, was was very, very appreciative to get a number of uh, companies and organizations to help sponsor this, Uh, University of Southern California, the Institute for Public Relations, and my own company, ICF Next, were major sponsors. But I also reached out to some other companies, uh, people I know at companies like... uh, Google, Hewlett Packard Enterprise, Bristol Myers Squibb, Chick Fil A, Chevron, some others who were very uh, very quick to kind of sign on and say, "Look, this is important. We'll help," and so forth. So that was really good. So that was what the fourth quarter was about. And then, honestly, spent uh, the first six months of this year doing all that research. And the research kind of uh, broke out into three major segments. One was quantitative research. We partnered with Morning Consult and did a big piece of global. Uh, research on the issue of polarization discourse, the severity of the problem, what could be done about it. And that study was done in the US, UK, Germany, Brazil, and India. So that was one of the three kind of big buckets of, of research. The second was what we called perspectives. And that was reaching out to get original commentary and thinking by prominent business leaders and see A, what they thought the impact of this problem was, and again, maybe more importantly, what could be done about it. So we did that. We could talk about that a little bit. And then the uh, third uh, bucket of information was case studies, examples of work, great work being done by companies, academic institutions, think tanks that other businesses could emulate or kind of partner with or, or, or be inspired by to do something on their own. And so, that, you know, to your point, that took a, a pretty significant chunk of time. So that was the first half of this year. And then in the summer leading up to our launch, uh, just about a month or so ago, we kind of pulled it all together and, you know, finished up the content, created the website, put a marketing uh, push behind it and so forth. So that's basically what the last 12 months was all about.
1: So that is interesting because I didn't realize it was in in advance of the speech that that's, I I love the idea that you thought about it and said, you know, let's actually do something about it instead of just talking about it. Because I think there are a lot of people out there talking about polarization, uh, sometimes because they don't know what to do about it, but sometimes because it's easier to talk about it than it is to try and come up with solutions. Um, In that speech, you talked about that polarization has really left us in serious trouble. You say compromise and moderation seem to be dirty words in part because the state of civil discourse is broken. And you say, as you just said, I proposed to you that business must help fix this problem. I think this point, compromise and moderation being dirty words is really important, but I would I would imagine that, and maybe this is partly what you had in mind, thinking that business has such an important role to play in this. And, and that's something I'm very sympathetic to. I think we often leave business out of solving big cultural um, challenges and that's that's a mistake. But that compromise and moderation are things that people in the workplace are probably pretty good at because they don't have the luxury of saying, I can't compromise with this person because I need to get something done. When we go out and talk to people in our audience, most of whom are in the private sector, um, they they talk about they don't have the luxury of saying, well, this person is a Republican and I'm a Democrat or whatever. They've got to get the job done. So in part, were you thinking that the workplace – uh, and business is a place where the there are solutions to having people work together collaboratively. That they have to compromise, they have to moderate themselves in the workplace, and therefore business can be a model too.
0: Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, first of all, to to what you just said, I mean, uh, the workplace tends to be pretty civil. Uh, there are a whole host of reasons for that, but for the most part, you know, the workplace is a place of civility. Uh, that's a good thing. Uh, the second thing is, if you think about it, the workplace is one of the very few places, if not the only place, that where most of us come together and are exposed to and engage with people from very diverse backgrounds, whether it's geography or gender or race or ethnicity or you know, whatever, uh, most of us tend to live in bubbles. And uh, Alan Murray at Fortune just recently wrote, Uh, something also that you know millennials for an example who are an increasingly important part of the workforce are less married or less likely to be married than previous generations they're less likely to join an organized religion they're less likely to join civic and social clubs and so what that means is you know perhaps outside of social media uh, the workplace is kind of the main formal connection into society so that's you know Kind of interesting. And that creates uh, an opportunity as well as I think maybe a responsibility for businesses to kind of step up and play a role in helping to kind of solve this problem. Uh, The one other thing I would say is this issue of compromise being a dirty word. Uh, It's it's a dirty word in politics. And that I think most people would agree is Mm. unfortunate because we've become, I don't think it's a dirty word in kind of day-to-day society. And this is one of the great conundrums is that, unfortunately, everything these days is just seen through a political lens. And so whereas if we if, if we were able to kind of drop the the politicization of, of you know, literally everything for just a moment, I don't think we're anywhere near the extremes that it sometimes seems. Yeah. I mean, I would argue that the, the most recent vote uh, Yes, on one hand, shows a major divide in this country, but you know, from the research I've seen, I still think there, you know, there's a substantial part of the of both parties that are at the kind of extremes. And extreme may be too pejorative of a word, but they're you know a little further to the extremes. You know. But I think there's a pretty substantial uh, moderate group in both parties that collectively probably represent about sixty percent of of the population. But you know we're very tribal. Uh, We tend to kind of stay in our tribes, and it's really hard to break out of that. And I think the opportunity to break out of that probably isn't going to come from the political world. It's going to come from our own efforts. And through that, I think business has a substantial role to play.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this point about the workplace being one of the few places that we come together with people who are not like us or that we have to encounter difference is a really important one. We use uh, sometimes in conferences, uh, a piece by a fellow named Mark Dunkelman, who's at Brown. And he wrote this book called the vanishing neighbor. And and in it, he's trying to make sense of the fact that we no longer trust institutions. We don't trust government. We are less likely to be engaged in organized religion. We don't trust big business. Um, And, you know, he says, well, let's look at maybe what prompted that more than how we fix it. One of the things he says is that we're not, we don't have neighbors. um, We don't have engagement with our neighbors, like a PTA meetings, those kind of things. Those things still go on, but we're more likely to sign online petitions, right? Or we're more likely to be in homogenous groups where we, you know, as you said, are bubbles. And we've had a number of people who've come on to talk about Uh, not being willing to talk across those bubbles. Uh, You know, if nobody's disagreeing with you, you're probably in a bubble, right? Uh, So I think the idea that business is a place where that's not the case, where we are kind of forced into areas where there's there's difference on all sorts of levels, is, as you say, an opportunity. But I can also imagine someone saying, in fact, I, I... I've heard um, this objection when we presented um, at a business um, incubator back in 2018 talking about civil discourse in the private sector uh, as opposed to focusing on it through the academy or through think tanks, that kind of thing. I had a really successful businessman come up to me afterwards and he said, I think this is a good idea, but I would never do this in my business place. And here's why. Because I'd be crazy to do that because I would be bringing in problems that I don't have. And the people who, you know, are in my business place would be nervous and all of that. I mean, I can imagine people saying that to you as you're thinking through the project. Yeah, it might be a good opportunity to be in the business place, but I'd be afraid to do it because I'd be afraid of either the backlash from employees or from stockholders, that kind of thing. You didn't find that, did you? Well,
0: it's a really interesting point. The, The truth is, for five years, there's been a growing trend on the part of business to understand that it has a bigger role to play in society. Uh, It maybe goes back to Larry Fink at BlackRock and a a statement he issued two or three years ago on the purpose of corporations to be, you know, to also have some beneficial impact on society to become more purpose driven. And those companies that are purpose driven tend to actually perform better. Uh, Last year, the Business Roundtable talked about the importance of companies uh, serving not only shareholders, but multiple stakeholders. Uh, You've seen over the last several years, CEOs willing to take on uh, more social issues in public. That's usually driven, I think, uh, primarily by employee pressure to tackle issues that are important to the company, to the employees. It could be immigration, it could could be LGBTQ, it could be any number of, of issues, but you see some of that going on. So I think companies have started to recognize, not only companies individually, but even the business roundtable and and, and so forth, kind of understand that. So I think there is an opportunity for companies now to play a more active role. And the most important thing uh, when we think about this is that nobody, I don't think anybody, is encouraging businesses to facilitate conversations about politics. That's not what this is about. What What I'm at least suggesting is there is an opportunity and a role for businesses to help employees have the tools necessary to engage in conversations with other people in the workplace and outside the workplace who disagree with them on any range of of, of issues. But we don't don't necessarily have those tools. And if you think about just in the last year, for example, many, many companies have really dialed up the kind of training they're doing around unconscious bias training Mm -hmm. as an example, right? Well you don't have to be a genius to realize that that training is as relevant and as valuable outside the workplace as it is in the workplace right so it wouldn't be a big stretch to ask companies if they're devoting for the sake of discussion 6 hours of training to a typical employee on unconscious bias training add 2 hours and discuss yes. how does this apply outside not how does this how does this apply when you're debating Trump versus Biden i mean right. you don't have to dive into the political fray it's helping people understand how do we how do we have conversations that are respectful where we learn how to listen and the purpose of the of the dialogue is to actually to learn not to convert you know yeah. too many of us go into these conversations the goal is to win and to yeah. convert you know when was the last time you were converted on that you know it's pretty yeah. rare. it's kind yeah. of a counterproductive philosophy about how to go into a conversation so I think giving employees because where are these where are people going to get these kind of tools or skills anyway and companies are already doing things that are kind of close to it yeah so at minimum at minimum it strikes me as a, a way in which companies can engage without necessarily being political
1: well, I think this is a really good point if you when you talk about these other other areas that companies are devoting time to, in fact, if people have the skills to have discussion about difficult issues you might not have to devote as much time about some of these things because people would be working out some of these would be able to have conversations that aren't kind of top down right so as you described that right there that sounds to me like saying and and so in a way the political is kind of a red herring here um it's it's not the political per se it is the the tools in the same way that uh being in in a professional capacity where you Uh, engage in professional development may give you all kinds of skills that you can use throughout your life, right? Project management, those kinds of things. Um, Just knowledge. We do engage in all kinds of professional development in the workplace already. This is actually a kind of professional development, but it has much, much bigger um, potential outside the workplace as well to deal with some of these issues.
0: You know, look, I think this is potentially a breakthrough idea that in retrospect will seem obvious. And that is that professional development inside companies should have some application to outside the four walls, virtual or otherwise, of the business. Yeah. I mean it's really not that, you know, innovative shouldn't be. Yeah. Person- shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Shouldn't <laughs> be. Yeah. But I think increasingly, I think more uh progressive business leaders kind of recognize there's an opportunity that the training that they're already doing can just be enhanced a little bit or tweaked a little bit and it would actually have a positive impact on society.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that's potentially you know, quite powerful. There are a hundred million people of us in this, in this country alone who go to work every day. Yeah, I mean, why not take advantage of some of the opportunities that the workplace provides?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's talk about the findings. Uh, I know that there are a variety of findings, one of which is that people really are uncomfortable talking about difficult issues, Um, that there are some differences in where that's the case. It's especially true in the United States. Uh, I think it was also true in the United Kingdom. Um, So you didn't just look at the United States. You looked at Germany, Brazil, places like that, Uh, that there is a difference in the perception of the problem between men and women. Women are much more likely to see this as, as an issue, polarization, um and that most of us do feel like it's something we should be doing something about but we don't think we're the people who should be doing something about it is that true
0: yeah i mean you know unfortunately you see this in lots of in lots of research studies where people think that there's a problem but you know they're not the problem Uh, you know it's always the other person and uh the the consequence of that like in this study as an example uh you know we asked if people were willing to engage and listen well you know something like 8 out of 10 people said that that we should be more respectful when talking with those with different views but only 5 out of 10 said that they you know they were willing to spend more time doing so uh and and half of them meaning only a quarter of the people so they actually do that so it's kind of like intellectually we know what has to happen this may go back to what we discussed earlier about living in bubbles uh you know if you're if you're somewhat, I mean, I hate to sound, make it sound like it's an extreme, but if you're, you know, if you're kind of a passionate MSNBC viewer, it's pretty hard to watch Fox News. And if you're a pretty passionate Fox News viewer, it's pretty hard to watch MSNBC. So even though you may intellectually know, yeah, you know what, I should spend more time reading or consuming some of the media that people who dis- who I disagree with watch or read, so I can have a better understanding and appreciation, and I can empathize more, and I can contextualize my arguments within the. Not that many people do that. it's yeah. hard, you know, and it's it's hard to do. I'm not I'm not suggesting it's easy. You know, if you if you believe one thing, it's hard to spend considerable time uh, with the other. And unfortunately, not to get you know too much down a, the you know the the rabbit hole of media. But uh, to a certain extent, we, one of the reasons we're so polarized is we, we live in parallel universes. I mean, we're just totally totally different uh, channels of information. And not mean me to just pick on, on on Fox and MSNBC. I mean, it's very, very true, certainly in social media. If you haven't mm. seen it, I would encourage you and your listeners to watch that documentary, The Social Dilemma. So, yeah. I mean, it's really disturbing about you know, how algorithms kind of feed you uh, kind of information, A, that conforms to what you believe, so it kind of uh, makes you feel good about coming back, and creates ways in which you you do come back. You know, kind of an addiction dimension to that. I mean, it's, it's I think it's an important film. But all of this stuff kind of. Contr- and then there are structural issues as well. I mean, uh, in the dialogue project, we have a, a terrific piece by Catherine Gale, who uh, just wrote a a book and a, an HBR piece with Michael Porter, the Harvard Business School professor. Yeah. On uh, the primary system, that you know, it's not just about dialogue; it's also about structure. That our primary system uh, should be uh, nonpartisan, but because it's partisan primaries, uh, and the base tends to vote, you know, the Republican primary tends to get the base Republican candidate to win. The Democratic uh, gets the Democratic base, and then you have a contest of two bases who don't necessarily represent the the, the majority of people who are somewhere in the middle. And then on top of that, you've got you know gerrymandering where something like mm-hmm. 90 plus percent of the districts are pretty safe for their party. And so if you're safe for your party, you they're you know appealing to the base that it's a structural issue in any case they're at the risk of oversimplifying it their their proposal is that part the primary system should be open primary not not partisan and that in the primaries you know anybody can run not partisan and then the top five vote getters go into the final election and then it's uh, I think it's called final five or rank voting where you know you you rank your five candidates and somebody has to get at least 50 yeah. plus one fifty percent plus one and if they don't the number five candidate drops out and then they reapportion and so forth. In any case, the, that structural solution that they're advocating tends to push candidates towards the middle mm. to represent more, which I think is you know, uh, a good idea. We do need to do things. I mean, it is a combination of structure and culture, I suppose. It's not as simple as, can't we all just get along? Right, right. I mean, there, there, is a, there is a healthy dimension of that that we have to take charge of because we're not going to get it necessarily from our political leaders but having said that there are also some structural issues that we need to tackle as well so the dialogue project you know kind of has that as part of its recommend or findings as well in addition to some of the quantitative stuff that we're you know we were just talking about
1: so the uh research we talked a little bit about the study uh you talked about the the website which we'll link to in the show notes has not only case studies, but it has essays from a number of these leaders. When when you think about where you started and where you ended up, what were things that surprised you? Um, Were there things that you were really excited about and things that you found really discouraging um, in the course of all of this?
0: Well, what I was pleased with was the level of participation we got, number one. Uh, You know, when you start this thing, you have no idea. I mean, every every company's busy. Everybody is busy. And so to participate takes time and effort. And for the most part, you know, what we were asking for was, well, not for the most part, entirely what we're asking for was uh, an original thought piece on this subject by often the CEO and sometimes other prominent business leaders as well. So that's in and of itself a commitment. And I was really pleased uh, that, you know, I didn't have to ask. Too often, I mean, people were receptive. They, they, I mean, everybody acknowledges that this is a big problem, Uh, so that's good. So we're able to, you know, get people like uh, Doug McMillan, who's the CEO of Walmart, who's also the chair of the Business Roundtable this year, Uh, Mary Barra, uh, chairman CEO of General Motors, Uh, Jamie Dimon at JPMorgan Chase, Gary Kelly at CEO of South, but then other, you know, really prominent, terrific people: Sally Sussman at Pfizer, Michael Snead at Johnson and Johnson. Uh, I mentioned Catherine Gale and a, and a bunch of other people. So, really, I think well-respected. There, you know, there probably could have been fifty more really great, well-respected people who could have contributed. But I was very pleased with with what we got. So that's number one. Number two, I was also pleased with the 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 quality uh, of their content and the the thoughtfulness and their willingness to be candid. Uh, so, a, a couple of examples. So, Gary Kelly is the CEO of Southwest Airlines. I mean, he's made civility and kindness. Very much kind of his own personal platform for the last two or three years, and you know that does fit in nicely with that Southwest culture. But he also was quite, uh, I thought, uh, bold and straightforward and candid about the challenges that we face. So, as an example, you know, one uh, one quick excerpt from the piece he wrote, he said, "It must not be lost on any of us that the Civil War was fought for the freedom of black slaves 150 years ago." We've come a long way, but not nearly far enough. And the Black Lives Matter racial injustice movement today should teach us all that we clearly have not learned and fully embraced the lessons of our dark past. Well, you know, that's a really candid, straightforward statement, not trying to, you know, I don't know, straddle lines of political correctness, whatever that means. I mean, he just kind of spoke from the heart and spoke truth. And and I I don't know, I was very appreciative of that. Jamie Dimon, uh, you know the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, I thought was also really uh, provocative. He, uh, a quick excerpt: when he talked about the challenges we have about our unwillingness to compromise, we're unwilling, we're unable, to, we're, we're unable to create good policy without compromise. Our he said our government is unable to reorganize and keep pace in the new world. Plain and simple, this is a collective failure to put the needs of society ahead of our personal, parochial, and partisan interests. If we do not fix these problems, America's moral, economic, and military dominance may cease to exist. So, I mean, you know, that's, I thought, really, you know, willing to kind of be quite candid, quite direct. The, the, the last quick uh, excerpt I'll give you is Michael Sneed. Michael is Executive Vice President Johnson Johnson, a terrific guy, and he talked about, The role of corporate social responsibility and he said you know we're corporate responsibility efforts you know used to focus on philanthropy and environmental stewardship and the like today it's much broader that being a good corporate citizen requires us to take a stand and not be afraid to step up and speak out especially when it matters most you know he said we have the unique ability to break down geographic economic and other barriers to reach and connect people from all walks of life and we have to use that position to contribute to constructive conversation and drive progress and positive outcomes on a societal scale and that's what we're talking about so i mean yeah. you know, here are business leaders kind of recognizing we need to step up and do more we cannot just kind of live in our business world so to speak and not worry about the impact of what's going on in the world and the impact we can have on making on, on, on having a positive impact on society so i think you know that kind of commentary from all of these business leaders and the caliber of the leader, uh, I was really, really uh, pleased by.
1: Yeah, I think it's awesome. I, and I think uh, that it, it takes some, I think it takes some bravery to do that, especially if you're a public company to come out and say those kind of things and not worry, as you say, about political correctness uh, and not worry about trying to balance, but to come right out and say, we have to address these things and we have to learn from these things. So I can imagine that there is then a tension in how you practically apply this, right? So early on, we talked about this as professional development, right? And there's some professional development we could say has, you know, little, well, that's not true, I suppose, actually. I was going to say that there's some professional development that probably is uncontroversial for most people, right? Like, well, if I am... um, you know, somebody who has to give um, regular presentations, getting some help with public speaking would be something that would be somewhat uncontroversial as professional development. Uh, I suppose diversity uh, and inclusion is more controversial, right? I, I I can think of people who have been involved in those kinds of trainings who, you know, regardless of what the goal of the training was, came away from that training feeling very... Um, uh, you know, not just uncomfortable, which I think is is not necessarily a bad thing, feeling uncomfortable. I think we learn when we feel uncomfortable often, um, but feeling attacked a little bit. Right. When we're talking about the skills to engage in civil discourse and we're talking about being able to come up with cre- creative solutions to complex problems. Um, I can imagine on the one hand saying that is the most practical thing you can think of, right? And so there's no controversy about that. We need practical solutions to these complex problems. How you go about doing that and and actually operationalizing all those things those CEOs talk about, right? And these business leaders talk about day-to-day in the workplace is another is another question. So what did you see? in these case studies that businesses are doing that you feel like are really, really, they're on the right track and they're making progress.
0: Well, I'll give you uh, two or three great quick examples. Uh, One is uh, General Mills, you know, terrific company, headquartered in Minneapolis. With General Mills, uh, they have a program called Courageous Conversations, which is a terrific program. It started out quite small several years ago, uh, totally voluntary in which, People were invited to come together and talk about some difficult issues. Uh, over the last several years, that program has grown substantially, still completely voluntary. It's gotten the support of the leadership of the company. It's run uh, by a guy who heads up their global uh, diversity and inclusion efforts. Does a great job. And now they have, uh, the last session they did was over 3,000 people joined. It's all It's been all virtual, obviously, lately. Before that, it was a combination of in-person in, in and uh and, uh, and virtual, uh, but what they'll typically do is have a 90 minute session every couple of months. And in the first 30 minutes, they'll have a speaker on a particular issue. And then in the remaining 60 minutes, no matter how many people there are who participate, they break them out into small groups of 10. And they've trained well over hundred people in the company to be meeting facilitators. So that when they sit down in that small group of 10, they do their best to make sure that that group of 10 itself is diverse. And then they have small, productive conversations. and they tackle everything from police brutality to race relations to LGBTQ issues to I mean any number of issues that are you know five or ten years ago would be considered third rail issues in the workplace. you know my gosh, we don't want to talk about that and so forth. And they really lean into it. The program's been remarkably successful. One of the things I love about that program is it's not very expensive. and the reason I say that, is I think that makes it potentially more attractive to other companies. You don't have to spend a lot of money to do something like that. And it's been really, really well received. Bart, uh, another- if I could
1: just stop you for a second yeah. when you talk about um, success. So clearly they've had success in growing it. They've got more demand for it. That's really important. Are there, are there other success metrics that you know about in that that say, I mean, personally, I would think that if you've got a workforce that is more comfortable being willing to raise difficult issues that could translate just day to day where you've got some kind of personnel problem or you've got, you know, um, feedback or things that you need to do, being more comfortable having discussions about difficult issues could translate in all kinds of different things. Are there other success metrics that those comp- general mills or other companies are using beyond kind of enthusiasm and, and, and keeping those programs going?
0: You know, I'm sure they, they, have them Mm -hmm. i don't i don't know what they are
1: yeah you
0: know exactly to your point uh there's a logical connection between that level of understanding of your colleagues and how your colleagues think and kind of having a a a a, a greater perspective and greater empathy with productivity and retention so you know it's all good i think increasingly the workforce, you know, and the, uh, people coming into the workforce in their 20s, much less in their 30s, a lot of the stuff that companies have anxiety over, a lot of kind of the newer people in the workforce don't really understand the anxiety. You can argue whether or not, the, you know, the the, the business ought to get involved in it. But uh, particularly when it comes to diversity and, uh, and, and greater need for empathy and so forth around a lot of these kind of social issues, I think. You know, a lot, of, a lot of newer people in the workforce kind of get that. I'm not yeah. minimizing the challenge. They kind of get it. So the the ability for a company to help to kind of facilitate that dialogue, uh, I don't think should be seen as, oh, my gosh, should, should we do that? Again, it's not culturally right for every company, but I thought it was a great program. I'll give another quick example. Allstate mm-hmm. All State has a great program. This one's not internally focused. It's externally focused, called the Better Arguments Project that they do with uh, the Aspen Institute. And uh, they go into communities because they very much believe they're in all the communities in this country and that uh, a healthy community is good for not only the community, but for all state and their business. And part of what that's all about, they call it the Better Arguments Project because there's a lot of research to show, you know what? The goal is to not necessarily have an argument. It's to have a productive argument, right? right. So they, again, kind of leaned into to, to this. And there are certain principles that they talk about about how to have a better argument. The first one I think we talked about earlier is take winning off the table. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, that sounds kind of really simple, but it really is kind of eye-opening. If you're going to have kind of a conversation with somebody who's on another side of an issue, if you actually approach it from the beginning that, look, I'm not here to, you know, convert this person. Yeah. But I'm really trying to, honestly, if this conversation lasts 10 or 15 minutes and then I'm done, the real, if I'm not going to try to convert this person then the real value of this conversation is probably me learning more. Absolutely. From that part, because I I know what I know, yep. but I don't know what they know, right? Absolutely. Well, just that one thing makes a profound difference in the nature of the. Con- they have some other tips as well, but I mean, just just kind of you know acknowledging that before you even begin the conversation can be substantial. the The, the third example I was going to give you is actually not in the dialogue project, but mm-hmm. it's a consequence of the dialogue project, I kind of came across it. Salesforce, you know the big company headquartered yeah. right on the West Coast, a friend of mine has, uh, knows somebody who recently joined their new employee. And he sent me this email that she got, this new employee got. And it's it, it, you get this when you first join the company. And one of the things in the email, it says, we're going to pair you uh, in this company with someone with a different worldview, but similar time zone and interests. We ask that you meet with them three or four times for 30 minutes during the month. We'll share some talking points weekly with you to help shape the conversation. We know that meeting someone new can be hard. So we'll share icebreakers and some questions to help you get below the surface, right? There's another one. What a great, simple idea. It doesn't cost anything, really. And, uh, you know don't interpret uh, a different worldview to mean we want you to talk about trump versus biden right it's, right it just it's a different worldview I don't even know exactly what that means but it's somebody with another perspective how great is that yeah and it yeah. goes back to what we said at the very beginning which is the workplace is one of the few places where that opportunity even arises yeah. Right.
1: Yeah, no, I think those are. And, and, you know, it's funny because both what you talked about in terms of understanding and learning about someone else's point of view and, and also having some humility about your ability to persuade people to other points of view is something we have heard over and over again from experts, most of whom are psychologists talking about uh, how to have productive discussion with people who have different points of view. Um, but I also think your point about what people expect coming into the workplace is really important because what you just described there, the Salesforce thing, that's something that we have partners at uh, Braver Angels, Living Room Conversations, places like that who are engaging in those kind of activities. And it's all volunteer-based, right? They sometimes have trouble getting people to participate in that because as you say, it's easier to um, talk about Resolving these things or participating in these things than it is to actually participate, and make yourself vulnerable, right? So I can imagine what you just described at Salesforce. If you say, and it's not true for everybody, if you said that to somebody who is 65 versus saying that to somebody who's, you know, 28 or 30, um, I think that could have a huge impact on how somebody perce- perceives that, right? Because I think people who are millennials or Gen Z want. Many want their workplaces to be better reconciled with the rest of their lives, and to provide that kind of professional development. But I can see, and and it's not true, again, just generationally, I can see someone else saying, I like the idea, but it's really scary to me, but I don't have a choice about it, because it's my, my place of employment. Now, the libertarian in me says, it's a place of employment and they can decide how they want their culture to be and how they handle it. Right. Um, And if you don't like that, and this is indicative of what the company is going to be, this is probably not the place for you. Um, I'm okay with that. Are you okay with that? If, if, if a business is saying, this is the kind of culture and this is the kind of development we want to do. Some people saying this is not the place for me.
0: Yeah, no, I, I am okay with it because I think to your point, the, over the last, Ten or twenty years, even uh, the role of the corporation has evolved. The expectation by the workforce has evolved. Uh, you know, we said earlier on. I think the uh, one of the big drivers of companies taking stands on certain issues is the demand by the employee population, and. Uh, you know, every business, as far as I'm concerned, is a talent business. You know, I mean, I don't care if you're a manufacturing company or a professional services firm, you still live and die by talent. Yeah. So in the in, in this world, if you want to attract and keep great talent, you need to be pretty dialed into what's going on around you. And that doesn't mean you're a political advocate all the time. Right. Right. Uh, you know, there, you may have seen the CEO of Coinbase just wrote, wrote something a couple of weeks ago saying, you know, we're staying out of all of this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I think actually taking a stand is often, if it's well understood and thought through, is often better appreciated than trying to uh, you know, straddle the line and, and, and so forth. Because that's when, that's when people really uh, get concerned because th- they don't know what you stand for. They yeah. don't know what the values. They don't know what the principles are. At least if I know what your values and principles are, I can do it. Now, to me, the values and yeah. principles are maybe engagement, and helping people kind of navigate all of this and so forth it's not necessarily taking big public stands on big social issues except in as much as any of those issues are directly relevant to the business to the extent that they're relevant to the business immigration might be very very relevant to the business and talent development and so forth so it makes perfect sense to take a public stand on that for many many companies there may be other social issues where uh it's not relevant to the business, maybe relevant to other businesses. Look at like, you know, Dick's Sporting Goods and, and what they've done in terms of uh, any number of things or yeah. guest health and uh, uh, Levi Strauss is pretty active at taking stands. but you know, they're taking stands in ways in which well, at least most of them that they would argue are very relevant to their business or very relevant to the lives of their customers and or employees. And it's a calculated judgment, but I think ignoring that or just kind of saying, you know, what, what, you know, used to be said 20 years ago that this is not the the role of business, this is not something to be discussed in the workplace, is more often than not really uh, just an out-of-touch point of view, given the expectations and requirements of the workforce. And if you live and die by your workforce and the talent you're able to attract to keep, then, you know, you've you got to be dialed into it.
1: Yeah, I like that idea. I like the idea of that being a recruiting, um, a positive in recruiting, being able to say this is the kind of culture we have. Not everybody's going to like it, but the best people, the people we really want are people who are going to be okay with this, even if it's uncomfortable for them. I think that's cool. Okay. In the final few minutes that we have here, I do want to get back to your um, HBR piece and the post-election suggestions you have based on what you've learned from the dialogue project, based on your own thinking about this. Um, you have a list, and as I say, we'll we'll link to this in the show notes, but you have a list of some things that um, people in business can be doing post-election. And as we're in this time of, I think it's fair to say at some level, Uncertainty, right? I mean, we we I'm we had a newsletter out today. We're not gonna go back and forth about whether Joe Biden won the presidency or not. We take it that he has won the presidency, but there are people in places of power who are still fighting this, um, and it's not crazy to think that people are in businesses where they have personnel who are on either side of this. Uh, you have a couple of different tips one of which is do not remain silent, communicate. You say the election and its aftermath will be the elephant in the room, it will need to be addressed. So what kind of communication are you thinking is relevant in this situation?
0: You know, there uh, there are any number of examples of company CEOs who have reached out because they know that the employee population is kind of, I don't know, maybe somewhat on edge uh, concerned. I'm, I'll give you one quick example. Uh, right after election day, when we didn't even know uh, you know, at all what the outcome was, this is, not a, this is not a corporation, it's a university, but I think it's a good example. The, uh, the president of Duke University sent out a note to the entire uh, community, the Duke community, and he said, with the results of yesterday's election still unclear, I want to start by reassuring you that the uncertainty we're seeing in our political system will not disrupt our vital missions of teaching, research, and patient care. The presidential race is still too close to call, and it's possible we may not know the outcome for some days, blah, 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 blah. Like you were following the situation closely, our primary concern in these tumultuous times will always be the safety and well-being of our students, faculty, and staff. Whatever the eventual outcome, we know that many members of our broad and diverse Duke community will be pleased with the results, even as others will find them deeply disappointing and upsetting. And it goes on then to talk about the values of the company. It's just acknowledging the reality of the world everybody is living in. Now, I do want to kind of quickly fast forward. The irony is, I think we're actually in a, a slightly different world right now. In other words, what you know, what I was kind of forecasting was either we would know right away, or there'd be this kind of ambiguous. Who knows? We're kind of almost in a third space right now, yeah. where it seems like everybody knows, but yeah, not really, you know? Right. Uh, now, I think for, for business, uh, what's not to be underestimated is the Business Roundtable and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce have all said, this is over. Yeah. Joe Biden is president-elect. Uh, let's move on, and plans are being made. So I think the business community has, for the most part, kind of acknowledged what seems to be reality, and that is this election's over. Biden won and there's just a lot of you know legal and political posturing going on but that i think the the third party if you will the ability to have cover and to be able to refer to statements by the business Roundtable, table by the US Chamber of Commerce uh, kind of makes it pretty clear and comfortable for businesses not to try to you know
1: balance both. yeah
0: let there be litigation you know there can be some litigation and you kind of see where that goes but it doesn't mean we have to wait 3 weeks to acknowledge what seems to be, you know, a fairly certain outcome.
1: And that to your earlier point does seem to be a case where uh whatever the issue is is relevant to the business operating in an environment where you're going to make some you're you want to have some certainty about these things and it's not constant uncertainty is relevant to business across the board right so it's it's totally reasonable and practical i think to say yeah somebody else is going to do whatever they're going to do but when it comes to us and what we think this is how we're going to move forward
0: right we're supporting you know the 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 point of view of our industry groups and of uh, you know uh, and and we are making plans to go forward the new administration You know, I don't know that I would necessarily go out of my way to say this, but look, if if things change, they change. But we're not going to kind of live in a state of uh, suspended, uh, you know, or just a state of anxiety wondering what's going to happen. Uh, We're going to plan based on the best information we have right now. And the best information we have right now from a number of sources is that we have to plan for the new administration and move on, you know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, and I like that point uh, in the Duke statement as well that we have to move on, right? We need to keep moving on. Uh, The website for the Dialogue Project is dialogueproject.study. Bob, thanks so much for being here. We will link to all of this and really encourage people to take a look at it. I know that this is going to be valuable information for our audience and I appreciate you taking the time to be with us.
0: Thank you, Jennifer. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you.
1: I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Bob is clearly someone who's very passionate about civil discourse, and uh, we were really grateful to have him spend his very valuable time with us. There are a lot of things I can take away from my conversation with Bob. I think one of the things that's really useful, um, we talked about it in the context of the recent presidential election, but it could easily apply to holiday meals, or just every day when you're around people who have different points of view than you do. And that is that just communicating that the issues are significant, and that, you know, as he he talks about it, there can be an elephant in the room. Just acknowledging that sometimes is really the most important step there is to reducing some of that tension. So you don't necessarily need a really complicated plan uh, to have some practical and important impact on your workplace culture, your home life, relationships. Sometimes you just need to acknowledge that there are differences of opinion and that it might be kind of tough and that might go a long way towards ensuring that you're having more productive conversations. So that's one of the things I'm going to take away from my conversation with Bob, and I hope you found something to take away as well. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil Squared podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.